Ephesians chapter 4 in your Bibles. Ephesians chapter 4. And uh, before we begin, I'd just like to uh, let you all know that yesterday I had uh, a great time. I went on a hunting trip with some professional guides and was able to shoot my first deer. And so, yes. I think that's a a part of being inducted into Franklin County. One of the things you start to shoot large animals. So thank you, Lane, for uh, giving me the chance to do that. And uh, shooting the deer was very exciting, but Lane's dance afterwards was equally or more exciting. I don't know if it was the Rocky Mount Shuffle or what it exactly was, but uh, I was just reminded of that great Southern Gospel song, you know, another one bites the dust once we we found it. So thank you, guys. It had a great time uh, doing that. Ephesians chapter 4, we're going to read verses 1 through 6. And let me just give you up front kind of the main idea of today. If, if you have your worship guide, you can follow along with us. On the back, we have an outline of this text. And the reason why we do this is to give you something that you can bring home and do some further study in the Word of God if you want to, and also to help you follow along. And before we, uh, I give you the main picture of this morning, I want to just explain, I did this about a month and a half ago, what we do in terms of preaching and why we do it in this fashion. Uh, There's a lot of different styles of preaching, and by that I don't mean conversational or yelling or the way that the preacher presents uh, the Word, but I do believe with all of my heart that at the end of the day, it doesn't matter what I think. And I don't want you to in any way base your Christianity or your walk with Christ on What does my pastor think? But what I want you to base your Christianity and your walk with Jesus on is what does God's Word say? And there is a huge difference between the two. That's why on Sunday mornings, I encourage you to open uh, your Bible. And if you don't have a Bible, we have those in uh, on the ends of your seats or there in a rack and you can follow along with us but the reason why we do it in this fashion we pick a passage from the bible and we read it and then the message the sermon is explaining what does this passage from the bible say what does it mean and from that point we we build what's called a bridge of application from the first century to the 21st century. In other words, this is what God's Word means. So what is God calling me to do today because of the text? And the way that the Lord is going to move in in this church is not going to be based upon my opinions. And it's okay to say amen if you would like there. And it's not based upon... And I'm not trying to be brash, but it's not based upon what you think. We can have a big discussion of arguments and opinions and ideas, but the ultimate blessing from God's Word comes from His Word. And so the question remains, what does God's Word say? That's the reason why at Rocky Mount Baptist Church, we preach the text of the Bible. So just wanted to give that a little explanation up front. Here's the the main idea here. It's a no-divided allegiance to Jesus Christ. And you have there in your discussion guide um, to be totally following Christ. 
To be a complete and a total Christ follower is to take orders from only Jesus. That means that the way that you live your life, the fashion in which the sculpture of you is shaped, depends entirely upon what does Jesus tell me to do. Now the way that we find what Jesus would tell us to do is what He already revealed to us in God's Word, what we know as the Bible. And this has just been an incredible passage. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1-6. through 6. I'm just going to read this and I'm going to take a short time to, to let us pray and just prepare our hearts and say, God, would You teach me? Would You teach me? Would You change me? Ephesians chapter 4, beginning at verse 1, the Bible says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. We could right now, let's just take a moment to, you could with me, just bow your head and let's uh, bow our heads and close our eyes. And Instead of me praying for us this morning, I'd like you just to Just ask the Lord. Say, God, would you teach me today? Say, Lord, I need you. And if you're here today and and you don't even know that, just say, Lord, would you tell me if you're real? If you're here and you're not even sure if God exists or if the Christian uh, depiction of God is actually fact, just say, God, would you reveal yourself to me? Would you show me if you're really there and if you are? If you are who the Bible says that you are. So God, would you teach me? Lord, I pray that this morning, that this would not just be a, uh, another Sunday in the South. This would be a time to where young men, women, long-time church members and first-time guests would be changed by the power of your Spirit not by my style of preaching or by anything that I say or don't say. But Lord, we just ask that today you would break through, that you would do a work that only you can do. Amen. Before we jump into the text, I think there are four areas that we need to explain because this text is going to crash against As waves crash against a rock, many of the things that we believe to be true. One of those conflicting areas of authority would be family heritage. And here's what we mean by that. That's the first uh, aspect there on your worship guide. Family heritage. Here's what's going to go. Here's what's going to happen today. God is going to call us to do something as individuals and as a church that will seem, it will seem radical. It will seem strange. It will seem weird, almost. 
And there are these four areas of authority that we oftentimes gain authority and we listen to and we act upon it in our lives that may conflict with the Word of God. But today, God is calling us as individuals and as a local church to have no divided allegiance in our following of Jesus Christ. The first there is family heritage. Now, if you are here and God has been changing you in recent weeks, if you are a new believer, or if God has recently lit a fire that has decreased in in years, it's been years before you really gave God a thought, and how can I serve Christ with my life? If God has recently done a work in your life, and you come from most of the time the South, your family will all but discourage you in being a full-fledged follower of Christ. And here's what I mean. When you really get in gear financially to give to missions, when you really get in gear time-wise, say, I'm not just going to commit to hear God's Word at a certain time on Sunday morning at a certain building, but I'm going to get in gear, live my life for Christ. Your family will, most of the time, unless they're walking with Jesus, they'll become very uncomfortable. Have you noticed that before? That it's kind of like, well, that's, that's good that you're going to church. That's good that you're reading your Bible, but don't get too crazy with it. Don't become a fanatic. Don't become a religious extremist. That's okay if you bring your kids to Sunday school, but when you start reading the Bible to them at the house, that's kind of like really uh, fundamental crazy. Sometimes our family backgrounds may be a conflicting source of authority. Secondly, church tradition church tradition, especially if you come from a church. I'll read you a very strong statement that will probably offend some people. And this comes from Jerry Rankin, who has been the president of the International Mission Board for over 17 years. Here's what he says. Very strong statement. He says, to serve God only where we live and ignore the needs of the nations is a, watch out, is a deceptive scheme a deceptive scheme of Satan to divert believers from God's mission. So Jerry Rankin, and we don't have time to get into this this morning, but he's dead on biblically. He's saying that the emphasis simply to serve Rocky Mount and Rocky Mount alone is a deceptive scheme of Satan to keep the gospel from going out into all of the world. Let me just be very honest today. A church is only a church is if it's based upon the Word of God. And the last words that Jesus said before He ascended into heaven was to go into all nations. Teaching, preaching the Gospel, and baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son, the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. So unless a church is actively engaged in, they may not have the resources to do it, but they can pool together with other churches if they are not actively. This is a very strong statement. If a church, so-called, is not actively engaged in bringing the gospel to all the nations, which Jesus said His church would do, it begs the question, is it really a church in the New Testament definition of the word? I think it's a sad thing. Let me just go on record. There are a lot of buildings all over the U.S. There's a lot of people who gather in them certain times out of the week. But how many of those truly are committed to the message of Jesus Christ? 
Now already I've distanced myself from some of you. Already this is seeming very radical. That if you come out of a church tradition that is all about taking care of each other instead of God has taken care of me through Christ, and so praise God, I get to get involved with bringing the Gospel to all around the world. It is, please hear me, not a church, but a support group. It's very quiet. So often, when you have a call to missions, it seems very, very radical. But when you read the New Testament... It's very, very natural. People say the thing in Baptist churches, have you guys ever heard this? They say, I don't feel called. <laughs> you ever heard that? I don't feel called to witness. I don't feel called to serve in the church. I don't feel called to give. Uh, and we've said this many times, but Pastor Johnny Hunt is so brilliant when he says, how do I know if it's God's idea to, uh, my idea or God's idea to give a large financial gift to missions or to a gospel funded ministry? And he says, it's always God's idea because I'm too naturally greedy to think of something like that on my own. And I concur with that. But it's kind of like when you were a kid and your mom or dad came in and they said, son or daughter, I want you to clean up your room. And you said, Dad, that's probably a great idea, and my room does need cleaning, but at this moment, sir, I do not feel called to clean up my room. And then he said, Son, I did not ask you, daughter, I did not ask you if you were called to clean up your room. I'm telling you, because I'm your father, clean up your room. And you say, Father, I need to go pray and see if you tell me through prayer if I should go and clean my room. At that moment, your parent might think, I have a dumb kid. Are we okay in the house this morning? He's already told us to go. We don't need to pray for a feeling to be led. I mean, you think of the ludicrous nature of being, quote-unquote, called to do something. I don't know of anybody throughout Christian history who said, you know what, God has called me to change diapers, and the way I know that is because I love the smell of it. You're like, bro, we got some serious counseling that we can hook you up with. I don't know of anybody who says, you know what, I love working in homeless ministry because I love the smell of unclean bodies. does not happen that way. It's never happened for people to say, you know what, I I feel called to go on a mission trip because I love drinking spoiled camel's milk. I don't think I've ever told you that story. Come back next week and we may get to it. Uh, You know what, I love going to places around the world to where they give me something on a plate and I say, God, if I get it down, you've got to keep it down. Amen? Like, I... I don't know of anybody that that, that says, you know what? B.O., baby diapers and unsmelled bodies, that's the way to party. No. But we get our hands dirty in the ministry and the grime and the dirt because behind the dirty diapers and behind the nasty food and behind the smell of unwashed bodies are the souls and the lives of Jesus, of people who our Lord Jesus came to save. 
Let me just go on record once again that if you're a member here at this church and you think that anything in that nature is too good for you, you do not understand the cross. And I'm just going to go on record. I doubt that you're saved because if we think that we are better than certain people and we think that we are above serving them, then we've never seen our sin and contrasted to the stark holiness of God. That Jesus would come down out of heaven and come to this world into a pathetic, horrendous, torturous, tyrannical Roman regime in the first century as a Jew, the most despised people and he would live and he would be around animals and he would work as a carpenter with his hands without power tools and he would experience splinters and he would sweat and he would experience pain and hunger but he did that he came because of the glory of God being manifest check this out please hear me and people like us people as sinful as us people as wretched as us would be saved by the grace of God and so it's not that we have to go it's that praise God we get to go and get dirty in serving people. Thirdly, national values. Now, I'm proud to be an American. I believe that our country is the best country in the world. I believe it's the best place to live in, in terms of being able to financially provide for your family. Although I do believe, as John Piper does, that it's the most dangerous place in the world to raise your child because of all the temptations. If you raise your child in the middle of Africa, they see the world as it really is. Hunger and food are of utmost importance and the things like a cell phone plan and whether I have unlimited texting that 18, 19, 21-year-olds, 35-year-olds are obsessed about. They just see that as a ludicrous waste of life that it actually is. One of the things that clashes against the gospel, please, please don't misunderstand me, is one aspect of the American dream, and here it is. American dream says that you are able, through the Constitution, you have the right to pursue happiness. You don't have to bow to any person because of some royal descent, whatever that is. But you are a free man. You are a free woman. You can earn your money. You can work the job of your choice. And no one can take from you what's rightfully yours. The king's men cannot come and take it. But if that American dream in your life is the license to build wealth to gain security without any reference to God using your ability to make money to fund the gospel going into all the world. And if it's for you, if you are using the American dream for you, instead of this incredible gift of freedom that we have in this country to tell the gospel and preach the gospel and fund the gospel everywhere, then it is a twist. And when you hear the gospel preached, when you hear messages like this, it crashes with the national values on what you think being an American is. The Bible says that where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty, there is freedom. Let me just say that there is a possibility, and please don't misunderstand me, but there is the possibility of being a slave to the American dream if the American dream is all about yourself instead of using the freedom to bring freedom to other people. Y'all okay? You could cut it with a knife right now. Finally, for personal beliefs, not only uh, do we have family heritage that could conflict with the gospel, your family not wanting you to get too crazy with this thing, not only could it be church tradition, where your church says, well, it's okay for the missionaries to go, but as for us, we have to be called to make our bed. 
national value. Finally, personal beliefs. Why do you think what you think? Why do we hold true what we hold to be true? This is the holy grail of 21st century Western culture, isn't it? We hear, well, what may be true for you may not be true for this person. What may be right for you may not be right for this person. And nobody wants to come and and simply cross that line of relativism and say that this is objectively morally wrong and this is absolutely evil or good either way. But your personal beliefs, what you hold to be true, have you ever been wrong at any time in your life? On anything? If you've ever been wrong, some of you guys, some are like, there was a time where I came really close. Nope, not me. All right. If you've ever been wrong about anything, could it be that your belief about the Gospel today and what Christianity is is also misinformed? That's why the message of Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1-6, through and we're about to pack it down, unpack it, unwrap it, is simply that you and I come with no presuppositions, with no assumptions, with no, please hear me, no religious traditionalism. To where we're more concerned about where the flowers are placed or the flowers are placed than how many people, how many broken homes there are in Franklin County. Religious traditionalism would be what order the service is in as opposed to do I have my life in order with Christ so that people can be reached with the Gospel through me. Religious traditionalism is all concerned about committees instead of absolute commitment to Jesus. I'm not trying to be offensive or or rude or cantankerous, but simply trying to bring us to the place that many of us have conflicting authorities in our life when it comes to terms of the Gospel. When you look at the life of Jesus, He bucked every single one. He bucked every single one, not for the sake of being a rebel for rebel's sake, but Jesus did it so that people would see what reality actually is. Aren't you thankful that Jesus just didn't sit back? That He looked at a religious system that was obsessed with ritual that didn't care about people, and He came through and Jesus was such a reformer that they killed Him. In the same way, what we're being called to from God's Word today will set you at odds many times with your family tradition, with your church tradition, with your national assumptions, and even with your personal beliefs of the past. But one thing that God will do when He calls you to be a true, radical, unbiased follower of Christ to where your bias is simply what He says I do. He will give you such peace and He will give you such rewards. And that's why it says there in verse 1, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the call with which you have been called. This is to, there in your notes, to live as a Christ follower should live. Now the Apostle Paul was there and he was in prison in Rome. That's commitment. The bro got the picture. Y'all okay? The man was committed. And the question that God has been burning into me this week is, Jeff, how committed are you? How committed are you? Are you committed to preaching my word? Or are you committed to dealing with the consequences of when God's word is preached? 
There's a difference between the two. You know, we all love stories of courage and devotion, don't we? Anything from a Disney movie to a Pixar movie to watching the 300 Spartans or watching Braveheart or reading the Red Badge of Courage. Said uh, when King Xerxes, the tyrant of uh, Persia, came against the army of Greeks at the Battle of Plataea, History records that each Greek soldier swore an oath before the battle. Here it is. I shall fight to the death, and I shall not count my life more valuable than freedom. Before the battle of Thermopylae, there was a king, Demaratus, who had been former king of Sparta, who had been exiled, who was now a counselor to Xerxes. And before the battle, he warned Xerxes of the Greeks' fighting spirit. Here's what he said. He said, they are free, but not completely free. For law is their master. And they fear it more than your men fear you. They do whatever it commands. And it always commands the same thing. They must never flee from battle. No matter how many are their enemies, they are to hold their ground. And there they are required, hear it, to conquer or die. And when you look at the call of Jesus Christ, He says there in verse 1, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. It is our commitment to conquer the world for Christ or die in the process. Not through trying to create political laws to where we shove something down someone's throat. Not through starting a, a 21st century crusade. Which is a little historical fact. Jesus said that my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight. Case in point, the crusaders who slaughtered Jews and Muslims in the name of Jesus were no longer, were no more followers of Christ than any other murderer. Just because you put a cross on your shield and you kill men, women, and children who have surrendered to you does not make you a Christian. Just want to make that very clear. And please explain that to your Jewish and your Muslim friends because the reason why many of them don't turn to Christ is because they see the butchers of the crusades as us today so we don't call we're not called to win the world through military might but to as the greeks said i will not count my life more valuable than freedom but some of us we hear things like that and then we say but jeff i can't do anything great like that who am i how could i do anything to change the world i I don't have uh, the chiseled muscles of a greek soldier i don't have the intellect of a first-rate scholar. I don't have the financial backing of a billionaire. I'm just me. Well, when you look at Scripture, it's so amazing that God uses ordinary people because when God uses people like us, the world looks at us and says, yep, (laughs) they're ordinary. But God gets the glory when He uses people, the world, thinks could not be used. That is the gospel. You see now, Jeff, he, he's saying there in verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling. Well, well, what? how should a Christ follower actually live? Well, it says there to walk in a manner worthy. This means to live a life that corresponds to the gospel. Our computer people know that uh, certain errors in programs are the result of 
a miscorrelation, a disconnect between certain commands. Uh, those of you who have worked on engines know that if there, if everything is not synced up properly, it's not going to work. And he's urging them to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. And the question that this text is screaming out to us is what things in our lives do not connect with the Gospel? Is there a disconnect between our talk and our walk? I love watching football games. And my uh, TV right now gets all of zero channels, so I, I try to get it when I can. But one of the things that I love in football games is when the camera will switch from the field to the sidelines. Have you ever seen this? And usually it's one of the very large men on the team. And he usually has his helmet off. And he's got a group of guys there. And it looks like, you know, it looks like a, a, almost a mom who's had it with her kids, right? I mean, he's just letting them have it and saying, we're going to win this game. And he's pumping up the team to look at the goal. And the goal is winning the game. But the goal of winning the game is dependent upon everyone doing what they're trained to do. The wide receiver, if he comes up to the center and says, you know what, I've always wanted to be a center. And the center says, you know what, I've always been the big boy around. I want to be a wide receiver. And because they want to make each other feel good, they switch positions. You know what happens? The wide receiver goes off on a stretcher, right? I mean, it doesn't work. And in the same way, God has designed the church and He's created all of us with different gifts to fulfill the same goal, and that is communicating the gospel of Christ. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Paul says to young Timothy, suffer hardship with me as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, you say, Jeff, what is this word walk here? Um, I've been to the mall and I've seen people walk. And by the way, that's better than any comedy show that you will ever see anytime, anywhere. Just go to the mall and watch people walk. You have the no belt club and you just feel compelled to give them a belt. You have some people who walk with a limp when they don't have a limp. Do you get my drift of thinking here? So what does it mean when it says walk? Here's several verses, but let me give it to you up front. This will help you when you read your Bibles. When you see the word walk, here's what it means. The pattern and the way that you live your life. The pattern and the way that you live your life. The way that you walk. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ has loved us and gave Himself up for us. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. For at that time you were in darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk, you see this, as children of light. Ephesians chapter 5, verses 15 and 16. Look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of your time, because the days are evil. So, continuous halo tournaments may need to be put on the back burner. Colossians chapter 1, verse 10. So as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 12. We exhorted each 
one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into His own kingdom and glory. And then in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 17, mark this down. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility, the emptiness, the vanity of their minds. Wow. So I should walk. The pattern and the way that I live should actually be like someone who's following Christ. To follow Christ does not mean to stop Christ. It doesn't mean to be the little brother who's following along irritating. It simply means to wherever he goes, I go. However he acts, I ask for him the ability to act. Please hear me, not for goodness sake. Because some people say, well, you need to do the right thing. Well, what is the right thing? How do you know what the right thing is? It all goes back to the nature of God, doesn't it? How do I know how to act? Look at Christ. And it says, don't walk as the Gentiles do in the emptiness of their mind. I have a friend who has a young son, about two, three years old, and he is going through the process of being potty trained. And some of you parents remember those fun days, don't you? Well, Ty decided that he didn't want to be potty trained right yet. And so what he did, the brilliant little man actually changed himself and deposited this certain thing into the air duct vent and hit it. His mom later realized that something was not right. You get my drift? Some of y'all catch that. That's the way that we are sometimes with the Lord. We think that we can take our sin and and put it over in a certain area. And, And parents know this so well with children. Sometimes children think they're so crafty and they're so sneaky that they're going to hide from the parent. And the parent is looking over the couch like I've got a lot of work to do. That's why he says, don't walk in the way that you once walked. And you say, Jeff, man, I've been saved. How do I walk now? You walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord. The way that you talk, the way that you act, the way that you treat people, the way that you talk about people who are not there. Say, Lord, how can I share through what you've done in my life to people? That's why he says there very quickly in verse 2, to walk with, what's he say? All humility, all gentleness and with patience, bearing with one another in love. Humility is placing yourself in a lowly position. You know sometimes why people get offended in church? It's because they have themselves up here. And if everyone doesn't recognize them as up here, then they get offended. But do you know how difficult it is to be offended? And this is such a freeing thing. If nobody has to think that I'm the man, if it's okay, if it's okay, that I don't hear people saying all of these great things about Jeff and nothing negative about Jeff, if it's okay... If I don't have to be the alpha wolf in the pack, if it's okay that I don't get constant encouragement, but if I know that Christ has died for me and that He loves me and that He'll take me to heaven one day when I die, if I know that He will help me through life, isn't that enough? But if we get our gaze off of Christ, what happens is we're looking at everyone else Instead of being humble, being subjected, we're up here like, notice me, call me, see me, 
Tell me I'm awesome. And there's not a bad thing with wanting approval. But when we place people's thoughts about us and their words about us as higher than what Christ says that we are, here's what happens. We become a slave to what people say. And Jesus came that we may be free. C.S. Lewis said it like this, as long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. But true humility, if you want to write this in your notes, Philippians chapter 2, verses 7 and 8, it says that Jesus hid but made Himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, He humbled Himself by becoming obedient to the point of of death. Even death on a cross. That means that Jesus, when He came to be a human, do we catch that? The incarnation, which means to come in the flesh. Here is the Son of God who came to live as a human. He emptied Himself voluntarily. It is the director of the movie coming down to play the part of one who does the lowest kind of work. And if Jesus did that for me, and if I have no divided allegiance against Him, then praise God, I get to be humble through what Christ has done. And the next phrase there is in all gentleness. Now guys, this does not mean effeminate. Okay? I'm not trying to make a joke, but this does not mean that men are weak does not mean that men are lacking in some manly quality. But it simply means the character and the nature of Christ. One of the fruit of the Holy Spirit is, in verse 23 of Galatians chapter 5, gentleness, and the next word, the next phrase is self-control. This goes in so many different directions, but here is the gist of it. Men, if we are to be true men, one of the main factors that God must create within me and within you, within us, is that of self-control. It's very easy today to look at, uh, let's say, for example, ultimate fighting and think that manhood is directly parallel to our ability to uh, make other men become unconscious by beating them in the head, alright? It's very easy today to look at cards and think that our manhood is, is, is expressed in how fast of a car that we get or what kind of trophy wife that we can get or whatever you want to put into the blank. But Jesus said in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, Come to Me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me. Please hear it. For I am gentle and lowly in heart. Wow. So for Christ... Gentleness is a very expression of His nature. And then the next one, what is it there? With patience or with long-suffering. Now, if you're here alive this morning, you are a uh, living testimony to whoever raised you their patience. Amen? I've known some people and they say, I've never considered murder until I had teenagers. It's one of those things that... We just have to grow with. And literally the idea here is, and this is so cool, this is from the Greek, the word for patience um, and the concept that carries with it. Notice there in uh, the phrase that follows it in verse number 2, with, all, with patience, here it is, bearing with one another in love. You know what it means? 
means to put up with one another. It means to put up. You say, Jeff, I'm not patient. Well, I'm not patient either. But guess who is? God is patient. If we yield ourselves with no divided allegiance to God, He is the one who will give us patience. You guys ever read the book of Revelation? Any part of it? Anybody in here like a little mildly freaked out about that book? Okay, a few. Here's a synopsis of the book of Revelation, and I hope that maybe sometime next fall, possibly, if we can can plan for it, I'd love to go through the book of Revelation and walk through that, what it means, what it does not mean, but here is the synopsis. The book of Revelation says that there will be a time, at the end of time, there will be seven literal years of what's called the Great Tribulation. And this Great Tribulation is going to have like multiple Hello McFly moments for planet Earth from God. Have you ever asked the question, why would God give the world seven more years? I mean, by that time, wouldn't God's patience, wouldn't the deadline of judgment had already been set and God comes to it and will say, okay, judgment day, boom. It's done. Heard the gospel, you've not received it. It's finished. The gavel comes crashing down. But why would God give the world seven more years of things like crazy stuff you read about in there and you think, man, you can... If someone was on the the earth at that time, they could open up the pages of Revelation and be like, dude, in the words of Bill and Ted's excellent adventure, it's true. The Bible says over and over again, and they repented not. They repented not. They repented not. If you're here today and you've not committed your life to Christ, it's not a matter of the intellect, but it's a matter of what sin you don't want to let go of. Here's the reason why God would give this world seven more years. Because God is full of... And if you have a King James version, it sometimes translates this word as long-suffering. That's a daycare's worker life verse, right? Long-suffering. School teachers, are you with me? Long... I am suffering. Suffering I am long. Get it? It is God's patience and His desire. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, I am not willing that any should perish, but that all, all, everybody, Americans and Chinese and Africans and Europeans and Brazilians and any ends that you find, that all should come to repentance. Praise God. And at the end of history as we know it, God's going to be like, guys, There's about to be a fireworks show with no safety precautions just so you know that I am real. But in another way, it's a sad indictment on the human heart. Let me ask you a question as we close. Have you answered God's call on your life today? What is God calling you to do? For some of you, it's to get saved. In a crowd like this, we have probably a lot of people who, like I was at 19, I had been through church. I'd been to the camps. I'd even been up in something that we call a baptistry as a child. Some of you guys remember that when you were a kid, right? And you go down, right? Because after, when you get baptized, you get to get the juice and the bread, right? I mean, it's like snack time in church. How cool is that? But you didn't understand what it meant to repent. 
didn't understand what it meant to believe with all that you are and all that you have. And you realize now, looking back, you say, you know what? As a child, I made a step before God, but my life since then has shown that there is not in my life what Scripture says must be. And that does not mean that you have to part your hair from one side to the other or wear a suit on Sunday, but it means that you have to have in Ephesians chapter 2, in verses 1 through 10, a changed heart that results in a change of action. Jesus said it so well. Good tree cannot bear forth bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear forth good fruit. And Jesus' patience and His love are never, please hear this, they are never more real than when Jesus says things that seem so strong. Because to wake up a person in a stupor takes something that might not smell good. And what is God calling you to do today? If you're like me who had made a decision as a child, but it wasn't the real thing, it wasn't biblical regeneration, God's calling you today to be saved for real. To call upon Him and to be born again, as Jesus says in John chapter 3. And there's some of you and you say, man, Jeff, God has created within me. I don't know what it is, but I just seem like I'm reading the Bible more. I, it seems like I'm wanting to pray and, and, and really serve God and learn about God. It's happened recently. I don't know what it is. Well, here's what you need to do. Simply in the in time of this invitation, say, Lord, what are you calling me to do? Be like Isaiah. Say, God, this may crash with what my family may think is acceptable. This may butt heads against my church tradition. Say, God, this may even cause some weird things with people at work thinking I'm a fanatic. But God, what do you want me to do? No divided allegiance. Amen. Because when Christ came, He gave everything for us. And there's some of you, and the sweet voice of the Holy Spirit has quietly spoken to your heart and said, I want you to follow me. You've been saved, but you've never been biblically baptized. I want you to step out and follow me. Follow me. There's some of you that need, when you leave this place today, you need to go make something right with someone that you know in your life. And there is unforgiveness. There's bitterness. There is a wall. You can't see it, but you can feel it. God is calling you in this time of invitation to say, God, even though I've been so hurt, even though I feel like I have been used and abused, I'm asking you to give me the ability. Please hear me. You will not experience freedom unless you forgive. Jesus said to forgive those who trespass us. Say, Jeff, I can't do that. Good job. Me neither. That's why we need God. That's the power of God's Spirit. Say, God, would you give me the power to release them and forgive them? Some of you, God is calling you to join this church. I'm going to ask you to come when we give the invitation.